Hello and welcome to JG Ministries Bible Study, where we study God's Word. I'm Jeffrey, minister and chaplain at JG Ministries, and I'm glad you joined us. Our study has been in the book of Luke, and last time we began chapter 19, and we left off with our discussion of the parable of the ten minus. So let's continue with this parable, and if you have your Bible, turn with me to chapter 19, verse 12, and let's get into it. Now this parable of the ten minus fulfills four important functions. It clarifies the time of the appearance of the kingdom of God. It realistically portrays the coming rejection and the future return of the Lord. It delineates the role of a disciple in the time between the Lord's departure and his return. And it also makes a unique contribution at this point in Luke's narrative. Now the parable of the ten minus, we have G Jesus speaking. And he's teaching in a parable, which is what he usually does. And he's talking about a certain nobleman who goes to this far off country to receive a kingdom. And he calls ten of his servants he delivers them 10 minus, and he tells them to do his business while he's gone. And when he returns, he finds out that the one servant made 10 minus, the second one only 5. And the master rewards the first one by giving him authority over 10 cities. He gives 5 cities for the second man to have authority over. And the other man didn't do anything with his minus. He didn't invest it in the bank to earn money or anything because he was afraid of the king. So the king takes away what was given to him and gives it to the one with the ten. So we pick up here with verse 12 and 13. The parable of this nobleman had an actual parallel in the history of Archelaus. Now, he was chosen by Herod to be his successor, but he was rejected by the people. He went away to Rome to have his appointment confirmed and then returned and rewarded his servants and then destroyed his enemies. Now in this parable, Jesus himself is the certain nobleman who went to heaven and awaits the time when he would return and set up his kingdom on earth. Now the ten servants typify his disciples. He gave each one a mina and told them to do business with this mina until he comes back again. Now, while there are differences in the talents and the abilities of the servants of the Lord, there are some things which they have in common, such as privileges of sharing the gospel and representing Christ to the world and the privilege of prayer. Now, doubtless, the Minas speaks of these. So we have the historical background for the parable, which was the visit of Archelaus, the son of Herod the Great, to Rome to secure permission to reign as a so-called client king over a Roman territory. This petition was opposed by a delegation of Archelaus' own subjects. And similarly, Jesus has gone to heaven 
or gone to the heavenly seat of authority till the time for his return. The citizens, as we look at verse 14, represent the Jewish nation. And they not only rejected Jesus, but even after Jesus' departure, they sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. So Jesus has been rejected by those who who should serve him as his subjects. And the money each servant received was worth about three months' wages. And their responsibility was to put this money to work in a business, in trading, or by an investment. Now, verse 15, here we have the Lord who is seen returning to set up his kingdom. Then he will reckon with those to whom he gave the money. And believers in this present age will be reviewed as far as their service is concerned at the judgment seat of Christ. And this takes place in heaven following the rapture. Now the faithful Jewish remnant who will witness for Christ during the tribulation period will be reviewed at Christ's second advent. And this is the judgment that seems to be primarily in view in this passage. Now, the first servant, as we look at verse 16, had earned 10 minus with the one minor that had been entrusted to him. He had an awareness that the money was not his own. And he used it as best as he could in the advancement of his master's interests. And we see in verse 17, the master praised him as being faithful in very little. A reminder that after we have done our best, we are unprofitable servants. His reward was to have authority over ten cities. Now, rewards for faithful service apparently are linked with rule in Christ's kingdom. The extent to which a disciple will rule is determined by the measure of his devotion and self-expenditure. In verses 18 and 19, the second servant, he had earned five minus with his original mina. And his reward was to be over five cities. And Jesus singled out three of the ten servants as examples. The first two did well. One so well as to receive a spatial accommodation for being trustworthy. The test was small. Not because the amount itself was small, but because of its relative insignificance in comparison to the cities awarded to this trustworthy servant. Looking at verses 20 and 21, our focus of attention should be on the last of the three examples. This servant allowed his fear of the nobleman's anger to prevent him from fulfilling his responsibility of putting the money given to him to work. To be sure, its investment was risky. But he had been specifically charged to take the risk of investing the money. In his case, conservatism was born out of fear and was wrong. The third comes with nothing but excuses. He returned the mina that he had kept so carefully in his handkerchief, and he had earned nothing with it. 
Well, why not? He is as much as blamed the nobleman for it. He said the nobleman was an austere man who expected returns without expenditure. But his own words condemn him. If he thought the nobleman was like that, the least that he could have done was turn the man over to a bank that it might earn some interest. And in quoting the words of the nobleman in verse 22, Jesus did not admit that they were true. It was simply the sinful heart of the servant that blamed the sinful heart, uh, that blamed the master of his own laziness. But if he really believed them, he should have acted accordingly. And verse 23 seems to suggest that we should either put everything we have to work for the Lord or turn it over to someone else who will use it for the Lord. Verses 24 to 26 that I want to look at together. The nobleman's verdict on the third servant was to take the mina from him, give it to the first who had earned the ten minas. If we don't use our opportunities for the Lord, they will be taken from us. On the other hand, if we are faithful in very little, God will see that we will never lack the means to serve him even more. It may seem unfair to some that the mina was given to the man who had already had ten, but it was a fixed principle in the spiritual life that those who love the Lord and serve him passionately are given ever-widening errors of opportunity. Failure to buy up the opportunities results in a loss of all. The third servant suffered a loss of reward, but no other punishment is specified in the text. There's apparently no question as to his salvation. Now, the principle of taking from one who has little and giving to the one who has much may strike, may strike us today as strange or unfair, though a person will probably want to have only a skilled investor entrusted with more money. The citizens who would not have the nobleman as their ruler are denounced as enemies and are doomed to death. This was a sad prediction of the fate of the nation that rejected the Messiah. In verse 27, the nobleman's anger is not intended to attribute such behavior to Jesus himself. Rather, it does picture the kind of response that one might have expected in Jesus' day, especially from the Herodians. It also reveals the seriousness of flouting the orders of the king, whom God has appointed judge. Now, this parable of the ten minus differs in some points from the parable of the talents, but it illustrates the same general truths. We are accountable to the Lord for the way we use our means and our time. There will be rewards and punishments, both in our earthly life and in heaven. We are in training here for life there. It is a parable of the second advent, a distant country in this parable. And in the parable of the talents in Matthew, hints at a long interval between Jesus' first and second comings.
So now we move on. We move to the triumphal entry, the Son of Man in Jerusalem. And Luke does not mention Jesus' actual entry into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. Instead, Luke shows us Jesus only as approaching Jerusalem, and after the crowd's welcome, he is still approaching Jerusalem. The story comes to its climax, not in Jesus' entering Jerusalem, but in his lamenting over the city. And therefore, while Jesus deserves a triumphal entry as king, Luke emphasizes that he is moving instead to the pace of his rejection. From Matthew and Mark, we learn that Jesus did enter the city. So let's take a look at our scriptures here with the triumphal entry with verse 28. And I like to read up till verse 44. When he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And they're referring to Jesus. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethage and Bethany at the mountain called Aliab, that he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks, Why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosening the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then he then as he was now drawing near the descent to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called out to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now it was the Sunday before Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus had drawn near to the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives en route to Jerusalem. Jesus drew near to Bethage and Bethany, and from that point he sent two of his disciples into a village to get a colt for his entrance into Jerusalem. He told them exactly where they would find the animal and what the owner would say. And after the disciples had explained their mission, the owner seemed quite willing to release their colt for use by Jesus. Now perhaps they had been blessed previously, by the ministry of the Lord and had offered to be of assistance to him anytime he needed it. But by linking Jesus' approach to the city with the parable of the ten minus, by means of after Jesus said this, Luke denies an immediate appearance of the kingdom and portrays the rejection of its ruler. Now Luke's mention of Bethage and Bethany locates where Jesus went. Bethany was, of course, important because that was the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. 
The Mount of Olives had a significant place in prophecy as the place of the coming Messiah's appearance. And Luke also stresses the dependability of the prophetic word. And with that, I want to stop there. We'll pick up with verse 35 next time. But until then, God bless you and keep living Christian strong. And with that, that concludes the parable of the 10 minus. Next, we'll have the triumphal entry. The Son of Man enters Jerusalem. But I want to save that for next time since we are running out of time. So until next time, God bless you and keep living Christian strong.